smart man. Hope is something the whole world is looking for and is especially needed in the church right now. But where is that door of hope? Early Māori navigators crossed the vastness of the Pacific Ocean without a compass, a map or a GPS. These navigators used the cloud patterns, the wind shifts, the currents of the sea, the flight paths of birds, the streaks of phosphorescence to guide them. Apparently some would lie in the bottom of their waka, feeling in their bodies the patterns of the waves. As they felt the waves rip through their bodies, they were able to sense the echoes of land as the waves retained a sort of a motion from bouncing off land. They were phenomenal navigators. A skill all but lost in the modern world. I have enough trouble crossing Cook Strait and keeping my lunch down, thinking of what they do and what they did. Phenomenal. It's a skill that's largely been lost, but it's common to indigenous people. The Inuit of northern Canada read the snow. Aboriginal Australians navigate the desert. Bedouin nomads in North Africa traverse the sand. Whakarongu describes listening and with the sense of really deeply hearing. Hearing and sensing what God is doing so that we can obey and join him. Listening wisely to all the little hints and nudges that his spirit gives us. It's probably a cliche to say, but the world has changed and continues to change incredibly rapidly. The Baptist Union's mission agency, that belongs to all the Baptist churches, Transcend, has set a strategic path for their next chapter. They've been trying to listen to what God is saying to them. And it won't be a one-off hit, it will be ongoing. The trusted ways that we used to navigate in the past, the equivalent of the, the GPS and the compass, well, they don't work so well anymore. We and they need to return to the ancient skill of listening to God in the silence and in the gentle whisper. There's this wonderful story of Elijah in the wilderness in 1 Kings 19, and he expected God to speak to him in the drama of the earthquake or the fire or the wind, but instead he found God in the quiet. Still small voice in the wilderness. And Elijah, hearing that voice, was able to respond with courage and imagination and purposefulness. Well, today's text is Isaiah 43. And the people who first received this, the people of Israel, were in exile in Babylon. They were a defeated, captive people. Exile 
is an incredibly hard space to be in. There's doubt, there's fear, there's even despair. Were they still God's people in this place, in this space? And Isaiah said this, But now says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I give Egypt as your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my sight and honoured, and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring you your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. So it starts there by reminding the people of Israel that God had created them, redeemed them, and summoned them by name. God reminds them in verse 1 that they belong to him, that he is faithful, and that he will be with them in tough times. He's not going to ditch them. God's love for them comes through clearly later in the passage. You are precious and honoured in my sight. In verses 6 to 13, God reminds them that he will lead them. Unlike the other gods, and they will be God's witnesses, God alone will reveal, save and proclaim. Then a bit later, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars and the shouting of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, will be turned to lamentation. I am the Lord your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. He reminds them that he had rescued them through the sea in Exodus. Crossing the Red Sea with the Egyptians behind them, they made it to dry land. The Egyptians are on the, on the um, seabed and whoosh, the Egyptians are gone. Now this reminder of how God had delivered them in the, in the past could have led to complacency. It's, oh well, it's just going to happen that way again. God will do what God has done in the past, yeah? Well, Isaiah believed that the hour in which his listeners found themselves called for them to be alert, to be awake, to be watchful. Destiny hung in the balance with earth-shaking events unfolding around them. The Jewish community was being engulfed in international developments that threatened to obliterate them and their role as God's people. Accordingly, right at the point where his audience would have begun to yield to the, the comfort of those traditional recitations of who God was in the Exodus, Isaiah says this, Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. And that's a bit jarring of what he says a few chapters later. Remember this and consider, recall it to your mind, your transgressors. 
you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. So don't look back, but do look back. What's going on? It's about the past. And the past is important. Because it's our story of God's faithfulness to us and we can learn much from it. But the past should never bind us. Our gaze needs to be into the future, looking to the new things that God is doing and calling us into. In Isaiah 43, many of the Jews now living in exile in Babylon wouldn't like the news that God has for them. They want the old story. They want the dramatic rescue of Exodus. But he's going to do a new thing. And as I read this and thought about it, I thought this is a very, very familiar story. Because it's the same now. For people who were here 40, 50 years ago, the temptation is to pine for the good old days, which here were the 60s and the early 70s. If you are of a more charismatic or Pentecostal persuasion, well, it's probably the mid to late 70s and the early 80s. If your church experience was strong on community ministries, then it might be the 90s. The bitter lesson, and I think it is a bitter lesson, of history is that the glory day of any church or Christian organisation are not usually the norm. They are days in the sun which should be remembered and appreciated for what they were. But the past has a treasure trove of inspiration for us. If only instead of looking back just at the last peak, the last really time it was really good, we look more broadly. For example, I know of a church that now follows the monastic rhythm of prayer much like people did in the Middle Ages during the week, either online or gathering in person. And much of our biblical treasure was written in times of struggle when things weren't going well. Okay, Isaiah 43 here is a classic example. It's written when they were in exile, when they were a captured people. And when you look at the broad sweep of biblical history, how much of it was written really into good times? Not much. In ancient Israel, well, it was the odd good king, like Josiah. In the New Testament, uh, Acts 2 to 8, before things got really nasty. And I think the Philippian church was the only church that Paul didn't have a crack at about something. The story of the people of God is generally a story of struggle with idolatry in the Old Testament and conflict in the New. And likewise with church history, the real treasures of our faith were written generally in difficult times. If you want to know about ethics, about how it is to be Christian and how to live Christianly, read Bonhoeffer's book. But he was executed by Hitler. And now that the church is on the fringe of society and no longer anywhere near its centre, well, 
we have the rich tradition of the church fathers who wrote between the time of the apostles and when the church became the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. And that was a really difficult time. They were shoved out on the, on the edges of society, thought to be complete lunatics. There were bouts of persecution, and between the bouts of persecution, you were waiting for the next one. So they lived with a lot of fear and a lot of discomfort. Well, Isaiah reminds the people that God is there for them. He, he led them through the Exodus. He's a faithful God, and then bang. Don't dwell on the past. I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. God wants to lead them out of exile in Babylon, but the way to their, back to their homeland in Judea is through the wilderness. And it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be dangerous. The shackles might have been lifted, they might be able to go, but the people are caught in a sort of a lethargy. There's this invisible cord around them. It's the sort of memory of the past that dulls alertness to the present. They need to be shocked out of that complacency and that lethargy. And Isaiah 43 is that shock. It's a wake-up call. I reckon nostalgia is dangerous because it's noise. And it's noise that clouds our ability to discern what God is doing right now and in the future as opposed to 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Faith is not simply remembering the past and telling the old stories, but it's been drawn into God's new unfolding story. This passage recognises the place for appreciating and honouring the past while also calling us forward to be daringly open to the future. God was faithful then, will be faithful again in this new journey through a new wilderness. God is saying, do not dwell, do not pay an inordinate attention to what has been. Do you not perceive it? It's a crucial question. Did the people of Israel see what God was doing and that God wanted to do this new thing? We are, uh, I remember hearing a story of ancient Chinese curse, which was, may you live in interesting times. We certainly live in interesting times. Huge global change. Life for our churches here and our global mission partners is changing incredibly rapidly. We aren't going back to the past. We are being called forward to a new reality, a new wilderness. And the question is, do we see it? Whakarongu is an essential value for finding God's way forward because it calls us to listen deeply. Jesus famously said that he was the way. Early Christians were called people of the way and described as wayfinders. Well, today we also need to be people of the way. People who can discern what God is doing and navigate our way through it. We need to be wayfinders. The ability to listen. Well, what is God doing? 
The traditional translations of this verse would have the first word as being behold. Ta-da! Look at this. Behold occurs over 1,000 times in the, old, in the Bible, both in, in the, uh, first, uh, the Old Testament and the New. It's a word we don't use much, but it means just stop and look at this. Now spring up, spring forth, reminds me of that. New life. Here God is saying he can do immeasurably more than we can imagine. And where is God going to make that life spring up? Well, he's going to do it in the wilderness, in the desert. God sees all situations quite differently. Over and over, God uses this metaphor of wilderness when God is preparing his people for something new, for something better. For God, the wilderness is a place of transformation and new possibilities. And think about our biblical story. You know, Moses did not meet God in the palaces of Egypt. He met him in the Midianite wilderness. Elijah met God in a cave in the wilderness. Ezekiel, wondering what God's plan was, is led to the wilderness, to the valley of dry bones. A real place of death. Jesus is preparing for his ministry and the Spirit leads him where? Into the wilderness. John the Baptist comes from the wilderness, saying, prepare a way for the Lord. And it's funny to think that the history of God's people is that we often profoundly meet God in those places, those bleak and desolate and low places of life. And for the Jewish people, the wilderness was seen as a profoundly scary place. There's very little food, there's no water, and sandstorms come from nowhere and just obliterate it at any moment. It's a place of death. They saw it as Satan's realm. And if you think about the Day of Atonement, when they have the scapegoat who symbolically carries the sins of the people, is driven out into the wilderness. In the desert, there are no distractions. There's no iPhone coverage. There's few supports. And we, individually or as a community, get stripped back to our, just ourselves and our Lord. Whereas in church, it's kind of, we talk about green pastures and fresh waters and all the rest of it, but God is saying, I can make a way. I can make a stream. And I can do a new thing. See it. Behold. I'm doing something new. The unexpected. Can't you see it? So what is this new thing that God is about to do? Well, we know God will provide a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. But we've got to be open to that. And it's not only that God is doing something new, but for us to see it, we need to find new ways of listening. Like I said, those GPSs and compasses, they don't work so well anymore. It's going back to those old Māori navigators lying on the boat, feeling the waves. Feeling the echoes. Okay. So where does all this land? Well, what we know now, 
about future mission in the two-thirds world. The two-third world here is the red and the green. So it's where the bulk of people live. The church in the blue areas is strongly declining. Yet still we have resources to be able to help. But what we're seeing in the last little while are that local Christian leaders in those green places are stepping up and leading projects, Christian aid and mission projects in their own countries. And that's really good. It's a sign of maturity. Christian theology has now been written on the mission field and been published, not just from North American and European seminaries. And that's another sign of maturity. It costs a phenomenal amount of money to send one or two people from New Zealand to live in the third world for a year now. It's pushing 100,000. The world faces the long-term threat of climate change, and as we heard from our young Bangladeshis, the short-term threat of COVID. And governments are making it quite difficult for Christian witness, and especially the involvement of expats, and especially if those expats are white. So I wonder then for world mission if the questions are now something like this. What can we do as the Western church that the local church can't do for themselves? And I think now that question needs to be answered by them, not by us. In the next few years, by the kids that we saw in that earlier video. I don't know about you, but I was impressed with those guys. And if we cannot physically be present, how best can we support the local churches in those countries? And actually, this has happened before. In India, um, I think it was Mrs. Gandhi kicked all the missionaries out for a number of years back in the 60s. In China, the communists kicked the missionaries out for decades. And lo, God's church survived and even thrived. But the challenge for us who meet here, in this place, is to walk slowly back into the future. I love this, it's a Māori proverb that we, we don't go forward into the future like this, we go backwards into it. Because the bit that we can see is actually the bit that's been. The bit we can't see is the bit that's behind us. But we can see not only the glory days of our particular tradition or experience, but we can see the whole rich, vast, biblical and Christian history, the treasures that are in it. And when COVID gives us the space, as a community, we want to gather together and look at our Transforming Opawa document again. In 2016, for those of you who weren't here, we, we gathered and we listened and we talked and we prayed and we worshipped and we came up with this articulation of where we thought God was leading us in one page. But we need to do it again because it's a dynamic thing. And needs must, we need to draw on deep listening to each other because Baptists... Um, view as well as being into walk shorts and knee socks and very long dresses. 
is that we believe that the Spirit speaks to each and all of us, not just the people up front who make a lot of noise. So we need to listen to each other. And it will probably be the still small voice in the wilderness rather than skywriting. It seems to be his way. And we need to listen to our times. Like Karl Barth, the famous theologian, said, you know, preachers should preach with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. What's going on in our world and what do we make of it? And the questions that I want to leave you with that we'll get round to when we have this exercise will be something like this. What is the overlap between our giftings and passions as a community and the needs of the people who live local and the needs of the people who live in our wider lives, our colleagues, our family, the people that we know that don't know you? How can we be more welcoming and inclusive of people who are not middle New Zealand? It's a challenge for every church. And how do we best support each other in this time walking together under the Lordship of Jesus? It's a bit to think about. My hope is that God will lead us backwards into the future in which in this place he truly will do a new thing. Let's pray. God of Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, Jesus, Paul, Peter, John, all of us, Mary, Lydia, through all human history and God of this place. We pray that you would renew us, that you would show us the way that you have for us in this place to best reflect your love and your acceptance and your righteousness into this community into our lives and the people that we know that are precious to us. We commit ourselves to that. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The musicians.